So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to John chapter 4. We are starting into the second week of our series. We start last, started last week, which is called One-on-One with Jesus. And so we're simply going through some key passages in the Gospel of John, and we're looking at the encounters that Jesus had with individual people and what he did and what he said. And the reason we're doing this is because we know that when Jesus walked the planet, Everything that he did, he did with intention and purpose. So every person that he encountered, every conversation that he had, he did for a reason. And so that's why we're taking some time to engage what Jesus said to people 2,000 years ago and then reflect on what is he saying to us today about what that looks like in our lives. And so this morning we're going to look at at a story of Jesus' encounter with a woman. And and this this woman has a, a number of things going on in her life that I think you and I can find points of identification for what she walked through. But really, this woman really is best described as an outsider, an outsider who had yet to really connect with who God is, and Jesus has this encounter with her. And the reason this is important is because all of us, in one time or season, or even even could be at the same moment, find ourselves at, at both feeling like we're an insider or feeling like we're an outsider. An outsider who wants to get into something that you can't quite access. You're looking in and you're intently wanting to be a part of something, but there's some barrier or something that's keeping you from getting to the inside. We've all felt that way. Many times we felt that way with God. That we know that God is good and we know that God wants to work our lives and we're trying to figure out who Jesus is and we're trying to lean into that, but we feel like we're on the outside looking in and we can never quite get in. That's the story of the woman that we're going to look at this morning. In fact, to kind of give us context, take a look at the screens. I want you just to look at this picture for a moment. In fact, this is, we're going to interact. I want to hear, when you see that, what do you see? Don't tell me that you see ducks, okay? I know you see that, okay? What do you see when you see that picture? Just call it out. Outsider. Outsider. Left out. Different segregation. Adversity? Yeah. Lost. It's a good, good words to describe. More dark than light. <laughs> That's good. <clears throat> Anything else? What was that? Dinner. Okay. Wow, this is deteriorating pretty fast, isn't it? Wow. We will pray for your soul. My goodness. But you can see. Yes, we just got that. We're going to pray for his soul. But you see, the imagery there is pretty powerful. You see. One that is not in the middle, one that is on the outside, with a barrier that's too great for him to get over to get to the inside. You see somebody who's isolated and alone and left out and marginalized. Why? Because the color of his fur, because he can't get up on that wall, or because nobody cares. We don't know, but we just know that sometimes we feel just like that. We're leaning into something, but we can't quite get there. We're leaning into what God wants to do, but we can't quite access it, and we don't know why. This morning, we're going to look at this story that kind of gives us some insight of understanding this concept of outsider. And not only in our own life personally, but also many times we're the one that is the outsider, but other times others are the outsider that God's calling us to be the avenue to bring them inside. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to go ahead and read. Uh, I'm going to read a good chunk of Scripture here this morning. We're going to read all uh, the first 30 verses of chapter 4, and then we'll jump in as well to verse 39 to 42. I just want to listen, just listen to the story and follow along as, as Jesus encounters this woman. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Joseph's well was there, so Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, around noon, our time, what we'd understand. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, himself, answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to, to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Then the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, or be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Then the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will be, not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus is reading her mail. Verse 19, the the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet, you think. (laughs) Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, in the place where people ought to worship, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming, or out of town were coming to him. Then skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed uh, because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of you, of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. I feel at first, it's like, let's just close our Bibles and go home now. I mean, you just listen to that story, and we'll, we'll walk through a little bit, but I mean, what an encounter Jesus has with this woman. And this is all intentional. This is pr- on purpose. And so, so when you see this woman, and we'll, we're going to kind of unpack a little bit of who she is because it really relates to who we are sometimes, and understanding who it is that Jesus loves. And it's really clear in the, the person he chooses to encounter. And so there's four things I want to begin with that really help us to understand when it comes to the outsider kind of some categories that Jesus identifies in this woman. This is the statement Jesus says, these are the outsiders that I love, that I'm drawing in to me. The first one is this. Verse four is the isolated one. So verse four, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. This is a loaded phrase. Okay, so understanding, you have to understand the difference between Jews and Samaritans. 
Huge difference. Obviously, you could see from some things in the text that Jews and Samaritans didn't get along very well. And the reason why is because the Samaritans were considered literally outsiders in every aspect. They were kind of the leftover remnant of the northern kingdom when, when Israel split into the, the, the northern and the southern kingdoms. Uh, the northern kingdom obviously kind of got marginalized, and because of that, they had the Samaritans kind of represented that, and so they were, they were kind of not even full Jewish. They were kind of half-breeds, and because of that also, they intermarried with, with other nations, including Assyrians, and so because of that, they were viewed kind of like as second-class citizens. And not only kind of culturally, but also religiously, because they had a form of Judaism where they embraced the Pentateuch, like the first five books of the Bible. And, but beyond that, they didn't follow some of the, the laws and the requirements that the Jews did. And so they were kind of half, half Jewish culturally and half Jewish religiously, but they weren't full anything. So they were kind of marginalized. They were kind of pushed to the side. And so they were isolated so much so that, that the Jews could not stand to actually go into Samaria. Why this is important is because normally what the Jews would do, if they had to travel north and south in their own country, knowing that Samaria was embedded in the middle of that, that region, they would go all the way around Samaria to avoid walking through it because they couldn't stand the Samaritans. Sometimes, even to the point, they would rather walk into Gentile territory than to walk into this territory of half-breeds. So it's amazing. Samaria is this little region within the nation of Israel that is isolated from the rest because they have been pushed to the side because of who they are. So Jesus, it says that he had to pass through Samaria, but if he was a good Jew, like the Jews, he would have gone around. He would have tiptoed around it to avoid encountering anybody who is a Samaritan because the Jews and the Samaritans didn't engage each other. Now, I want you to think about that in terms of how does that look in our time? Do we have any Samaritans living in our community? Do we have Samaritans living in our, our nation? We could identify some groups, but ask some questions of yourself. First, personally reflect on, is there anything in your life that makes you feel a sense of isolation from God? Maybe it's something that you've walked through in your life, or maybe even some of your own background and your identity, or even even your own ethnicity. You might feel like somehow there's something that has pushed me back, that I can't quite get in where everybody else can get in. Or maybe maybe it's even something else. Maybe for you, there's, there's a person or a group of people that are somewhat isolated that you've distanced yourself from because of some criteria that you've, criteria you've come up with in your own mind and you've pushed them away. Think about that and think about are there people or places in our own community that you tend to avoid because of something different about them than you? I think all of us deal with this. I think, I think for the church and culturally in our, in our country right now, I think there's a group of people that have become isolated and that's Muslims living in our nation. Because we look at them and we think, okay, well, you're not Christian, so you don't believe in the Jesus that I believe in. So religiously, you're, you're not in agreement with who I am. In fact, some of us would, people would go as far as say, well, you're the enemy. And then because of what's gone in the world, going on around in the world right now, everybody will automatically, when you say the word Muslim or Islam, they think radical extremists. And so there's this, this, this fear that pushes away from them. And so because of that, in the church, we have a tendency to do that. Now, do we have a different belief system? Absolutely we do. And I'm not saying that Christianity and Islam is the same thing, but you know what? We have, we have unique and uh, kind of tied together roots in our history. If you, if you follow back, Islam came originally way, way back when. Out of the, you know, the bridges of, we have Judaism and Christianity, but you go back and it, it has its startings way back when. Now, I'm not trying to justify it, but I am saying, do you think that maybe if Jesus were walking the planet, he wouldn't be afraid to walk up to a mosque? 
that, you know, the Jewish centers in our city where people tend to, I've heard people, oh man, I wish a church would have taken over that building. Why do they have to go to the Muslims? Maybe because God wants us to reach the Muslims in our city. And they're here because God wants us to engage with them and show them love and compassion the way he would show anybody who's isolated from him. Moving on, it's always interesting. It's either too hot in here or it's really quiet and I need to move on. Just so you know, if you guys know me, the messages never get easier. They always start easy and get harder. So we're gonna get harder here. Second thing, look at verse six. The outsider that Jesus loves is also the immoral one. In verse six, it says, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well and it was about the sixth hour. Remember, Jesus does everything on purpose. So he's sitting at the sixth hour, which is the middle of the day, which is the heat of the day. So normally, the normal rhythm of a well is that when you draw water, you go in the morning and you go in the evening because that's the coolest times of the day. You don't go in the middle of the day. Nobody would go in the middle of the day except an individual who wanted to avoid contact with everybody else. So there's a woman who comes to the well at about noon. Why do you think she comes to the well at about noon? Because she ran out of water? Because she came in the morning and she was really thirsty? No. Because she knew if I came at the peak of the heat of the day, chances are no one else is going to be there. I'm not going to have to be judged by anybody else. And, I, and I'm, I'm making a leap here, but I could probably estimate that in her mind, when she saw Jesus sitting there, she's thinking, oh, great. I thought no one would be here. And why does she do that? And we know from the context, because the life that she's led, she's got a reputation, an immoral reputation about her life. And she knows that if she can go at noon, she can avoid all this, the glares and the judgment of all the other women in the community. Even the Samaritans are going to judge their own. And so she goes, if I go at noon, I can be away from them because I don't want someone to judge me for my immoral lifestyle. And so she's trying to isolate herself and she's experiencing that in and I think sometimes if we're not careful in the church, we do this too. We, we put the scarlet letter on people. We think because of their behavior and because of their decisions or because of their immorality, they have, they're stained. And we keep people at arm's distance. And I think that happens in our community and it happens in the church. In fact, I think the, the greatest thing happening in the church today where this really, I think, applies is with the LGBTQ community. As the, ch as the church, we don't know what to do with someone who comes out and says, I'm gay or I'm lesbian or I'm bisexual or I'm questioning my sexual identity. We don't know what to do with that. So what do we do? We're like, oh, I can't understand you. And from my understanding of scripture, you're immoral, so I'm just going to push you away. Jesus intentionally sits himself down by a well where he's going to encounter an immoral person. The opposite of what we would do. And that's why we, we talked about sexuality this Latin number of months ago and had a series about that and talked about if somebody's processing through their sexuality and they've come out as a homosexual and that's their primary identity, don't you think that the church should be the place where they can process that in safety? It should. But what do we do? No, you go out and figure it out in the world. You go listen to what the world's telling you about your sexual identity and don't have anything to say what God wants to say about who you really are and you go figure that one out. And then when you're clean, you come back. It doesn't work. This might be a big leap, but if Jesus was living in the L.A. area, you know where he would probably find himself? West Hollywood. Probably would. He'd probably walk right down Hollywood Boulevard in the middle of West Hollywood, in the middle of what the church would say is an immoral climate. Why? Because he loves people. And some of you are here today, and you're grappling with your sexual identity. You haven't said anything because you're in the church, and if you do, you feel like you're going to get pushed out. Jesus wouldn't push you out. We'll talk about what Jesus does when he engages people who are on the outside looking in. 
It is even quieter than the first point. Let's just move on. Wow. <laughs> verse 7, look at verse 7. Jesus also loves the outsider who's the marginalized one. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Wow. This is, this is pretty important here. Jesus is publicly engaging a woman. Something you don't do. In fact, you could tell his disi- the disciples were uncomfortable because they weren't understanding, Jesus, why are you doing this? This is, like, this is not part of the rules of social kind of structure. You just don't talk to a woman who, who's by the well, by yourself, and all those kind of things. So Jesus is engaging women. This is extremely important because not only is he engaging a woman, he's engaging a Samaritan woman, and many of the Jews held to this radical, extreme belief that the Samaritans were so unclean that w- women who were Samaritan, they were uh, so unclean, they were the equivalent of being on, the pe- on their period all the time. They were considered like ceremonially unclean. So Jesus is engaging a Samaritan woman who's been completely marginalized. And this is significant. Why? Because in Jesus' day, women were particularly marginalized. They were, it was a male-dominated culture and society, and so women were treated as second-class citizens. So Jesus is intentionally positioning himself at a well where he's going to engage a woman publicly to make a statement about who he loves. Guys, he does love us, but sometimes, and I think I can probably safely say that today, sometimes we treat women like they did 2,000 years ago. Sisters, you can say amen to that. I know. And we think, oh, yeah, I yeah, you know, we're, we're more civilized. We're, 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 you know. No, so many times in the church, we have the men and we have the women. And I, I'm not, I, I've talked about, you know, women in leadership and the way God's gifted people. And it isn't about gender. It's about calling. And we've talked about that. But I just, sometimes it baffles the mind in the church where we think, you know what? There's certain things in the church that only men are going to do and women have no part doing. When you think about that, why in the world would Jesus give us the great commission to tell us to go make disciples of all the world, and then he'd say, by the way, I'm going to disqualify half of my workforce? Why would he do that? He wouldn't do that, would he? I'm not going to get on my soapbox, but just there has to be a way to understand. Jesus intentionally engaged a woman to demonstrate to the culture and to his own disciples, I value and I, I love people equally. Sometimes that's, that's hard for us. It's interesting. Who was the first witness of the resurrection? It wasn't one of his male disciples. It was Mary. She's the one that told the disciples, hey, by the way, he's risen. And they're like, what? And that's, remember, when Peter and John got in a foot race? Remember that? Why? Because a woman told them. She was the first one to proclaim the gospel, wasn't she? On purpose. But let's think beyond that. Maybe it's just not women. Who do you marginalize? Who do you push to the outside, the, the far extent of your life because you don't know what to do with them? We do it all the time. We do it in our society. We, our society is built on a pecking order of value. It's in the church. It's in our culture. I, I saw it firsthand. Robbie Oster and I got a chance to go to UCLA basketball game a couple weeks ago. I love Robbie. He was like, he, he connected me. We got, we got tickets and we sat on the second row on the floor at Poly Pavilion. It's like, Robbie and I afterwards like, okay, we can die and go to heaven because we're happy. It was awesome. But it was really interesting. When you sit in seats that you really don't belong in, 
because there's kind of the swag is back with UCLA this year because they're really good this year. And so all the celebrities have come back and they're selling out every game. So you walk in there and when you're in the second row, literally, I, the first thing it is, I sat down on my chair, I took a picture of my feet sitting on the wood floor of Poly Pavilion. I'm sitting on the floor. And so as you're sitting there, though, you realize that you're in, in, a, in an area where most people who are there are there because they're somebody. And so Robbie was telling me, yeah, he goes, there's going to be people. I mean, we're going to see celebrities. And so we're like, had our phones like ready, you know. And I know it got really real when, when about, I don't know, halfway through the first half, Pete Sampras, who's like one of the best tennis players of all time, he comes in and sits like, no joke, I could have tapped him on his shoulder and said, hey, Pete. But I wasn't going to do that because everybody else was going, hey, Pete, how about a picture? But when he sat down, I'm like, okay, th- I've never sat in this seat before. And I was interesting, and you could feel it. Everybody's looking around and saying, who's who? You know, like, like that person's got to be somebody. I don't know who they are, but I'll take a picture because I'll figure out who it is later, right? You just felt that. And, th- and the way they treated you in these seats was you were better than anybody else in the arena. Because it's funny, as you're watching it, you look, you kind of look, and there's like the first tier on the floor, and then there's the kind of second tier, and you think, oh, there's some important people there. And then there's like the third tier, and you can kind of still make out people. But then like the fourth tier of poly pavilion, I'm looking up, and like, I can barely make out a human form up there. What is that? That's the margins. That's the, what we call the cheap seats, right? And that would mean nobody of significance would ever get a cheap seat ticket and sit up there, would they? No, they would always sit down on the floor. And you feel that. Nobody is like running up to the last section of Paul and saying, can I take your picture? Because you're in the cheap seats. Nobody does that. Why? Because those people are not considered important. In fact, it's interesting, at halftime, they, they, we had people coming out to us and giving us the halftime stats, like a printed sheet for all those sitting on the floor. You get to see the stats at halftime. Nobody else got that. I got a free program. I got a free dinner in this exclusive club, all this stuff. And you felt like, wow, I'm really somebody. And I thought, no, I'm really nobody. I just was lucky to know Robbie who got me in here. But don't we do that in our culture? Why is it that when the Academy Awards hit Hollywood, everybody wants to see the red carpet? All the shows are that way. Why? Because somebody who literally lies about their identity for a living, we pay more money than anybody else in the world. No offense if you're an actor, okay? You're just really good at lying. That's all it is, okay? Better than anybody else. Why? Because we have a pecking order. Jesus came to say there is no pecking order in the kingdom. There's just equal value for human beings. And so we can't marginalize people. And if you felt marginalized, the beauty is, is that when you come to Jesus, you get seats on the floor at Poly Pavilion. Anyway, moving on. Fourth thing. The outsider that Jesus loves is also the confused one. Look at verses 22 and 23. So Jesus, she's engaging Jesus about this conversation about worship, and Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So she engages Jesus at this level of worship, and she starts talking about worship, and she's talking about location. And Jesus is talking about who? And she's talking about whether it's, you know, here on this mountain or if it's in Jerusalem, Jesus mentioned. And and so she, and he's talking about, no, it's, you're worshiping the Father. And so he's focusing in on the spirit and truth of what worship is, not about whether it's done in this location or that location. Why? Because in her mind, remember, she's, she's not fully Jewish. She has a halfway religion in Samaria. So she's coming to the table confused about who God is. She has some understanding there will be a Messiah, but it's somehow, it's not clear for her because she doesn't fully understand who she's talking to yet. So she comes to Jesus confused, and, and, and what does Jesus say? Go and study some more and come back when you know who I am? No, he didn't say that. 
he starts to engage her right where she's at in her own confusion about clear, bringing clarity for her worship and understanding that. Have you, have you ever experienced anything in your life where you feel like, you know, I, I just don't fully understand what's going on here, and because I don't understand, I'm, I feel like I'm an outsider. You ever walked in, into a place where you don't know the unspoken rules? You know, in church, we have lots of unspoken rules. When you walk in here on Sunday morning, if, you've, if you're familiar with Antioch, you kind of know, know what the rhythm is, but if this is your first time here, you're like, I don't know, how does this church roll? Especially if you don't know Jesus, you're walking, I don't know how any church rolls. You walk in like, why are people standing up? Why are they clapping? Why are they raising their hands? Why are people crying? I don't understand these things. These are all kind of the unspoken ways that we do church. And that's true for, for our culture. So somebody comes in, they may be totally confused by what's going on in the room and by the way that we live our lives because they don't know. So do we say, ah, uh, we just kind of write them off because they don't understand and just wait till they kind of someday figure it out? No, that's not what Jesus was doing. In fact, I might have shared this before, but... but we had a shelter up in Newburgh, Oregon. We had a women and children's shelter. And so because of that, and a lot of the women that came through there had no church background. They were walking through the, the lowest moment of their life. And many of them found their way into our church. And I love when someone comes to church who doesn't know the rules. They come in and, and they don't know because they've never been to church before. And so there was one Sunday I was preaching and right in the middle of a message, like six rows back, these two women with like outside voice level start having a dialogue. And they're having a dialogue about what I'm preaching about in the moment. Like, it's like discussion time in their row. And so they're talking about, and they're laughing, and they're kind of, but I, I, I'm doing, I could, in that moment, I could do two things at once. I usually can't, but I'm, I'm preaching, and I'm hearing what they're saying. I'm like, they're having a dialogue here about what I'm preaching about. And I'm watching all the Christians around them squirming. Like, don't they know they're not supposed to talk in church? In fact, there was a guy sitting right in front of them, and his face is just like red, like he's going to explode. And so I'm watching all this, and finally, after like five minutes, they die down. And, and so, so after the service, this guy comes up to me, was sitting right in front of him. He goes, did you hear what was going on during your message? I'm like, yeah, they were having a great conversation. He goes, they were being so disruptive. Everybody was distracted. They couldn't hear what you're saying. They were turning around, and these women wouldn't be quiet. I said, what were they talking about? Well, they were talking about your message. I'm like, wow, really? I said, do you think that's a good thing for them to talk about? He goes, yeah, but not in the middle of church. And I, I said, do you realize where they're coming from? I said, do you realize this is probably the first time they've ever set foot in a church? They don't know. I said, if it really bothers you and you're so offended by it, I said, next time, maybe just turn around and say, hey, ladies, why don't you guys go ahead and keep having your conversation, but maybe just lower it just a little bit so people aren't distracted. I said, that would be fine. But please don't tell them to be quiet. That was the last time he and his family at our church. They left the next week. Why? Because they couldn't stand sitting around somebody who didn't know the rules, and they didn't have the patience to explain the rules to them, so they just wrote them off. How many times do we write people off because they just don't get it, because they're in a confused state about who God is? That's the people that Jesus loves. He loves this woman. She didn't get the thing of worship, and Jesus is saying, let me bring some clarity for you, so she could understand. So Jesus engaged the confused one. So maybe you find yourself in one of those categories of people who are on the outside looking in, but here's, here's the, the kind of the core of I think what I think Jesus would want us to see today is when we move from the outside to the in, there's something that happens that Jesus does in us for that to happen. Because so many times you and I think on the outside looking in, then I've got to do something to get in. So you try to climb the wall, you try to break through the barrier, and no matter how hard you try, you're still on the outside looking in. Jesus is the one that welcomes us in. And here's how he does it. When we move from the outside in, this is what's going to happen. And these are maybe some warnings for us as we engage Jesus. Jesus will touch your sin. 
Look at 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband. Come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, or have, have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you said is true. Ooh, Jesus, can you just back off a little bit? I mean, she's, you're just talking about worship and things, and what was Jesus doing? Was he, was he being judgmental? Absolutely not. Here's a woman who is on the outside looking in, and the reason she's on the outside, and one of the reasons is because of brokenness in her life, because of her sin and failure in her life, and she, she's engaging something about, in fact, she believed that it was going to be a Messiah, so she's seeing herself as trying to be, get to the inside, but now Jesus identifies, listen, that's the thing right there that's keeping you from where you're at. And Jesus does it in a very loving and compassionate way because he's not shunning her and he's not judging her and he's not pushing her away. He's just clearly bringing into the light what she's holding in the darkness. And that's scary because one of the things that Jesus does because he loves people is that he never allows you and I to stay in our sin as though it's okay. Now, here's the difference. We think that we're Jesus and we're going to judge people according to their sin. We're not Jesus. Because normally when we judge people according to their sin, we're not offering the sacrifice that he's offering. We're just offering judgment where he doesn't do that. So in this context, what's happening is Jesus is saying, listen, here's your issue. Let me point it out to you. This is, this is, the, this is what's keeping you out. And so as you and the closer you get to Jesus, the more in a really good way he will mess up your life. He'll start going into areas you don't want him to go into. Because he's going to get to the core of what's going on in our lives. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how we have friends who are porch friends, that we have living room friends, and we have kitchen friends, and then we have bedroom friends? Jesus just went right for the bedroom friend, right? He just right, in fact, he went beyond that. You know where he went to? He went to her closet, the place she hides everything, right? If you're like me when you were a kid, remember, mom told you to clean up your room, and you really didn't want to, but you knew you had to. So what did you do? I know what I would do. I ran in my room, and I cleaned up everything on the ground on my bed, and I shoved it in the closet, and I pushed the door closed. Anybody want to confess that you've done that too? And I remember my mom would come and inspect the room, and I'd be standing where? Right in front of the closet. <laughs> Look, mom, there's nothing on the floor. My bed is made. Everything looks great. Of course, knowing that everything that was just a mess five seconds before is now all crammed, hidden in my closet. So many times, and I think this is what's happened. This woman is having an inkling this might be the Messiah, but what happens is the Messiah opens her closet and says, I'm bringing what's in the darkness into the light because this is the only way you're getting in. You're going to have to let me touch your sin. Not in a way of judgment, in the way of I'm going to redeem what's broken in your life. How many of us have stuff in our closet? And every week we go through our lives and we shove stuff in there that we want nobody to know about. We come to church, and I, this is one of the things I can't stand, and please forgive me if we've ever said this in the church. People say, you know, when you come to church, just leave your garbage at the door. Are you kidding me? You can't. Bring it in with you, because you're going to bring it into the light so that Jesus can deal with your garbage. That's what he does. And if you and I understand that, that means that there's some things that we are holding back from him, which, by the way, because he's God, he already knows it's there. He's just waiting for us to open the closet and say, there it is. There it is. And it's at that point that we begin to move from the outside in because now we're letting him into the deepest parts of who we are in our brokenness. And there's a second, second reality when we move from the outside in. And not only will Jesus touch your sin, Jesus will touch your soul. Verse 13 through 14, Jesus says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Isn't that incredible? Jesus is saying to this woman, he's using obviously the analogy of her physical thirst, but he's saying, I have something that I can give you that will never require you to be thirsty again, to go find something to quench your thirst because you will be, your thirst will be quenched from within you because of the spring of life that is in you. What is Jesus saying? He's, he's pointing out something so important for us. Remember when we went through the series on sin? What is, the, what is the primary motivation for our sin? We're looking for satisfaction. That's what we're after. We're looking to be satisfied in some capacity in our life. So we just happen to be looking in the wrong places of all the things outside of what God's doing in our life. And we're trying to find some sort of satisfaction, which what happens is we keep going to that well and we keep drinking of it, but we keep having to come back for more. And eventually that well dries up and then we find ourselves thirsty. What Jesus is saying is that there will be nothing outside of you in this world that you have to go to over and over and over again to quench your thirst because I will put in you a spring of living water. Just, just think about that for a moment. You mean there would be nothing in this world that I'd have to look to to satisfy the needs of my soul, that everything that I have would be present in me? How is that possible? Because what is Jesus? who does Jesus give us when we say yes to him? His Holy Spirit deposited in us to be his presence in us. And then he empowers us beyond our own ability. But to live with the presence of God in us. Just think about that. I don't have to go to all these outside things. I'm not turning into the inside of who I am. I'm turning to the inside of what God has placed in me, who is the Holy Spirit, who lives inside of me. Think about what it's like to experience that. In fact, listen to what Jesus said in Luke 11, verse 13. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Holy Spirit is what? Is that deep spring. It's not a well that runs dry. It's a spring that just replenishes itself within us. Why is this significant for us? Because we go through most of our li- most of us go through our lives thirsty all the time. We do. And we can't find anything to quench our thirst. Just think about this for a moment. Think about the time in your life when you were like the most thirsty you can remember and remember when you got water that tasted like nothing else. Anybody remember a time in your life like that? When I was a kid, my uncle took me and my cousin and my dad on a backpacking trip and he was gonna prove to me how hard it is to backpack and he proved it beyond a reasonable doubt. It was hard. He took us up elevation and really hot temperatures and I remember when we finally got to a stream and I put my canteen and I filled it and then I just... It felt like I sat there for like 20 minutes and just kept drinking and drinking and never tasted so good. I just could not get enough of it. And it, it was just like, it's because it was not only tasting good, but it was quenching my thirst so that by the time I was done after 20 minutes or so, I wasn't thirsty anymore. I was completely satisfied. That's what Jesus is promising, not just for physical water. That's what he's promising to his people, that you and I can live in a world that says, here's all these things that will satisfy you, which won't satisfy you. And Jesus says, no, there's one thing within you, the Holy Spirit, who will satisfy everything you need and will give you life. Just think about, just just thinking about this week, and this is the way my mind and my life works. If I will get to the end of the day, I will be very dissatisfied with the day. Things didn't go quite right. I was frustrated about things, and I, didn't, I wasn't getting satisfaction from people or things. And I go to the end of the day, and I'll get frustrated, and then I'll think, I know what the problem is. It's not people around me. It's not the church. It's not the place that I live. It's not anything. You know what it is? It's the fact that today was all about me. Today was all about what I wanted for my needs and what was going to satisfy me. When people let me down, I got frustrated. But I know that in those other days, 
like yesterday, I got up and I reminded myself again. I said, Lord, today I want you to show me what it looks like to be satisfied by you. To not live my life looking for things outside of what you're doing to satisfy me, but I'm just simply going to be selfless, selfless with my life and not try to get things to make me happy. Those are the happiest days of my life. Anybody relate? Because it's not about me. It's about what God is doing in me and the satisfaction that he's bringing. And for me, yesterday was a ritual that I've gotten into which is really good, which is I try to, when I'm not super busy, I try to mow my lawn on Saturday morning. You're thinking, wow, that's really what satisfies you? You need help, right? No, what I do that is because on Saturday morning is when everybody comes out of their caves in my community, in my neighborhood. That's when people are out, you know, you know, the ones that came home and hit the garage door and closed it before you could talk to them. Suddenly, they're out on Saturday morning. I have the best conversations with my neighbors. I'm like, it's not about me, and I've made a decision a long time ago. It's going to take me longer to mow my lawn on Saturday morning than any other day of the week because I'm going to be constantly interrupted. And so I remember going out, I'm like, okay, how long is it going to take me today? And sure enough, within the first five minutes, first interruption, this couple comes walking around the corner, and I had not really talked to them before, and neighbors I hadn't met, and we, they walked by and said hi, and they kept going. I'm like, okay, no conversation, not going to push it. And then he came back. You know when you're like standing there and I was like edging my lawn and I could see out of the corner of my eye there's somebody standing there. So I just turned off and I went over and I said, hey. And so we started talking and turns out that he has had background in church and then we started talking about lives and we talked, started talking about foster care and I said, yeah, my wife and I and our kids, we foster babies and he's like, are you serious? He goes, my wife and I have always wanted to foster but we haven't found anybody in the county to talk to. I'm like, well, here you go. And so he goes, you know what? He goes, I, I want to, my wife and I want to sit down with your wife and talk about fostering. And I said, okay. So he said, I'm going to get you my number. We're going to connect. I'm like, great, great conversation. That was like 10, 12 minutes. And then I go, okay, I'm back. And I'm like energized. I'm having, and then the guy pops up. He's a title guy from a real estate company taking pictures of the house running across the street. And boy, was he talkative. <laughs> Four conversations. He kept coming back for more. I'm like, oh man, I'm dying here. And then I realized, this is why I'm mowing my lawn on Saturday morning, because it's not about me. And I, I walked away, and sometimes, literally, I, I probably could have finished, no joke, about 45 minutes to an hour earlier than I finished. But I knew I'm there for a reason, because it's not about me. And when it's not about me, I come back in the house, and I'm like, I'm so happy it took me two and a half hours to mow the lawn. Because I was living. I was experiencing life, because it wasn't about me. And I think if you and I understand that the life that Jesus wants to give to us, there's something inside of us as we give that away that shows us what life's supposed to be about. And I'll get to the end of the day and I'll be exhausted, but I'll be so happy. I'll be so satisfied because my life wasn't about me. And then finally, moving from the outside in, is that Jesus will ultimately touch your identity. He will touch your identity in a way that changes everything. So it says in verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony if she said he told me all that i ever did why is that significant so think about this this woman everybody knows this woman that's why she's out at the well at noon they know who she is she has a what reputation that follows her everywhere she goes she's the immoral woman she's the one that has issues with men she's that one so she comes walking back into town and she's like you guys are not going to believe this this guy who doesn't even know me, Jesus didn't know a reputation, literally just told me everything I ever did. They're like, what? And they also, because remember, they're Samaritan too, and they have some concept of Messiah. They're like, could this actually be him? 
Could, could, how could he know that? And because they're looking at a woman who's completely immoral, that's what they've known her as, and she's saying something that they can't believe, they're like, whoa, if something's happening to her, then something must really be happening. So then it's literally streams of people start coming out of town to where Jesus is at the well. Why? Because of this woman's reputation. Here's the beauty of it. It's her reputation that got their attention, but it's her, they're her identity that she embraced that changed everything for her and for them. Because if you read on, what happens is they come out because of her reputation, and then they say, we no longer believe because of her. We believe because of us. Because now we see what's going on. Now, we, we don't know all the, what's happened, but, but we can probably estimate and kind of figure out. We don't know what happened the week after this or the month after this or the year after this. But if this woman fully embraced Jesus at this moment because he had told her everything she ever done, she's now come to faith in him, I'll tell you what's happened to her. The next week, people start looking at her and they start saying this. Oh, yeah, that's the woman who used to sleep around all the time. That's that woman that encountered Jesus out by the well that, remember, the bad reputation? Yeah, remember she used to do all that stuff? She's not doing that anymore. And maybe a month or even a year goes by, maybe a couple years, and no longer, you know what, her identity is no longer the woman that used to. She's just the woman. Because her past has no longer followed her because her identity is completely brand new. That's the journey of following Jesus, is that he will actually touch your identity. He will help to shape the identity that you're supposed to have. That we don't, we don't come to Jesus and then our whole lives we live with, I am the former sinner. No. We know we're former sinners, but that's not who we are. That's who we were. And for some of us, J Jesus wants to touch your identity. He wants to remove the scarlet letter. He wants to get you beyond your past, and he wants you to be established in who you are today, not who you were yesterday. That's the transforming work of God, and that's why it's good, but sometimes when people live in the testimony of their brokenness, they never fully become who God called them to be. Now, it's important for us to have testimony, but you can't live in the testimony of your past and fully be present with Jesus because he's pushed that away, and now he's given you a new identity. I'll close with this, but I've shared about her before, but again, this is a, a woman that I, we encountered up in Newburgh, Oregon, who was coming out of the shelter that, that was connected to our church, and Talk about a shift in identity. So she came into the shelter homeless, a single mom struggling with men, obviously, most likely from an abusive situation. And I've told you her story before. The first thing she said in the door of the shelter that night, she said, listen, I know this is some Christian-based organization. She said, but I just want you to know I am an atheist and I want you to leave me alone. I just want to be off the street. I want my kids to have food. I don't want to be on the street anymore. So that's where you're. So I'm not talking to anybody, so just leave me alone. And everybody who was hosting in the shelter respected her wishes. They said, okay, we're just going to love you. We're not going to push anything on you. Nobody broke out a Bible. No one read her the four spiritual laws. Nobody did anything. They just loved her. Because she came in with an identity. In fact, I heard about it before I even met her. I started hearing rumors of this woman in the shelter who was an atheist. And that's all. Did you know there's an atheist in the shelter right now? That's what I hear from people. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's an atheist. And so it was, that was her reputation. She's like, and she doesn't want anybody to bother her. I'm like, okay. About four months goes, three or four months goes by, and, and I started hearing a different story. One night, she's in the shelter, and she comes to this conclusion. She says, okay. She goes, I have come to this conclusion. You guys are so nice to me, to my kids, that the only explanation I can come up with is that there has to be a God behind this. That's, there's no way human beings can do this. This is an atheist saying this. Then you fast forward a few more months. I am standing in our baptismal in our church next to the guy who's discipling her, and she is getting baptized. 
And at that point, you know what she was? Oh yeah, that's the former atheist, the single mom who came off the street who was struggling with men. That was her story for about a year in our church. I remember, oh yeah, Michelle's story. Yeah, she's the one that was this, this, this. And then you know the coolest thing? This is probably about five or six years ago. About a month ago, one of, one of her, her sons who came into the shelter with her got married. And somebody live, live uh, Facebook lived it. And so I, I watched, I'm like, oh, I was crying. I'm like, there's proud mom. I think she was the one holding the phone. And she was like, here's her son Austin getting married. And no longer, hey, that's Michelle, the former atheist. No, that's Michelle, the mom of Austin who's getting married today. It was the coolest thing. And now in, in, that, in Newburgh, she's not the former atheist, the former this. She's just Michelle, follower of Jesus. Because her identity is brand new. Is that, do she, does she ignore her story? No, her story's still there. But her story doesn't identify who she is. Jesus identifies who she is. And that's what Jesus wants to do for all of us. He will, he will mess in a good way with your sin. He will give you the Holy Spirit who will saturate and satisfy your soul. And then he will give you a brand new identity. And you know what? You don't do any of that. He does that. And in doing that, you don't even realize at one moment you f f suddenly become on the inside. Not because you've done it, but because Jesus has brought you in because of his love for you. Would you close your eyes? I'm going to close with this, and we're going to sing one last song um, together. But this morning, I think there's a couple of categories that I want to highlight as far as what we may be processing personally and what the Lord may be saying from this passage. And the first one is this, as we think about our perspective on inside and outside. You know, when, when we started with that picture of the ducklings and, you know, the, the crowd kind of going one way and the one getting left behind, I know the majority of us probably would identify with the one. Say, yeah, you know, there's been times even right now where I felt like, yeah, I'm on the outside looking in and I, and I can't get in. But maybe even this morning as we've looked at this passage and we start to think about even our own community and the church and the area that we live in, Maybe that Jesus right now is highlighting to you a person, a group of people that maybe you have pushed to the margins because you don't know what to do with them. You don't know how to handle their religion. You don't know how to handle their lifestyle. And so you, you've kind of pushed them and isolated them out. And what you may be feeling right now is God stirring in you something that you may be pushing up against. But he, what he may be saying to you is that that person or that group of people who's on the outside, I'm calling you to be the avenue that I use to bring them to the inside. And so God is now challenging what you've thought about a group of people. And now he's starting to give you the love and compassion he has for you. He's giving that, that you would have that for them. And I want to encourage you right now, don't push back on that. Don't run from that, but embrace that. Because somebody in your life at one point looked on the outside and saw you. And God chose to use them as the avenue to bring that you from the outside to the inside to know Jesus. And now Jesus is asking you to do the same for somebody else. That's the first category. The second category that maybe truly in your life, if you be honest with yourself, you are the duckling that's left behind. Maybe it's because of your past, maybe because of something that you've done, or maybe even something that you're living in right now and you're struggling with, and you know, in fact, even in your own mind, you think, I'm hiding this stuff in my closet, I'm keeping it back, and if anybody ever really knew me, they would they'd push me away. 
Jesus never pushes us away, and therefore his church, which is his bride, which is his people, are called never to push people away. And so I'm going to encourage you that, that you would allow Jesus to step into the closet that you have hidden yourself in and allow him to see all of who you are, the, the, the failure, the addiction, the brokenness, the selfishness, the immorality, whatever it is that you stuffed away and let Jesus bring that out into the light where his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness can now begin to heal that brokenness in your life. But it's going to require that you risk coming into the light. And in our church family here, it's my commitment and our commitment that if you step out of the darkness into the light, that you will not experience judgment or condemnation, but you will experience forgiveness and acceptance and ultimately an introduction to what Jesus wants to do in your life. So, Lord Jesus, now as we come to a conclusion today, we know, Lord, that you are at work in us by your Spirit. So, Lord, I pray for those of us that you've called to be that avenue or that conduit that brings those from the outside to the inside of who you are. Would you help us to have the courage, Lord, to love the way that you loved? And then, Lord, for those who find themselves, they are the marginalized, they are the lost, they are the isolated one, they are the ones that have been pushed away, that, Lord, now, Jesus, you would draw them in. You would touch their sin. You would fill their soul. You would give them a new identity in a way, Lord, that things truly are brand new not just refurbished, not just remodeled, but Lord, renewed to the core of who we are. We know that you can do that, Lord. And so now as we sing, Lord, would you grab our hearts, grab our attention, and Holy Spirit, would you do your work in us today in Jesus' name.